Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. The leaders of Israel were confounded by Christ. Not because he spoke in riddles and they couldn't understand him. They were confounded by Christ because he was becoming widely popular as a preacher and a teacher, and yet he was not like any of the Pharisees or the scribes or the priests or the Sadducees. He was different from everybody else. He spoke with an authority that none of them had. None of them could speak the way that Jesus could speak. None of them could command the attention that Jesus commanded. He was performing undeniable undeniable miracles and they were confounded about how to respond to those miracles. They, On the one hand, if they said they were divine, they were of God, then they were admitting that Jesus was speaking for God. And they found themselves in a quandary because they were clearly miracles, but they didn't want to admit that they came from God. Thousands of people would flock to watch him heal, to listen to him teach, to watch him cast out demons. They would bring their sick friends and family and watch Jesus heal all manner of sickness and disease. He would preach about this kingdom. And in the Pharisees' mind, the Sadducees' mind, the priests' mind, the scribes' mind, when they spoke of the kingdom, they were thinking of a literal, physical kingdom on this earth at that time, that that was the renewal of the Davidic monarchy, freedom from Rome. They were thinking purely political. And Jesus was not speaking as a political kingdom. He was impossible to fool. They got the brightest minds that they could and all of Israel together and they tried to come up with questions that they could trip him up with, questions that he could not answer and he answered every one of them in such a way that it made the people who asked the questions look foolish. He would turn the tables on them often and they were confounded by that. They tried to trap him in trick questions and he made them look like morons. Jesus was not like the religious leaders the political leaders, the societal leaders. He never tried to be part of their circle. It wasn't like Jesus tried to fit in and they didn't like Him and they wouldn't let Him be part, so He went out on His own. He never tried to be part of that circle. He didn't want to have any part in that circle. He never sat under their teaching. He wasn't somebody who just exceeded His own teacher and then began to have His own following. He didn't act like them. He didn't affirm them. In fact, he actually taught against what they said multiple times. Repeatedly in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll hear Jesus say things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he would contradict the things that they had been taught by the Pharisees and the scribes, Sadducees and the priests. He seemed to oppose their long-term traditions, things that they held dear, things that they had began to equate with law. He opposed them. Like doing things on the Sabbath day. Like eating without washing your hands. 
He refused to take on a political role as he grew in popularity and the people in any given town wanted to make him the king, wanted to make him the ruler. They wanted to present him uh, before the people in Jerusalem as the next king of Israel. He refused. He wouldn't have any part of their political agendas. He never spoke out against Roman oppression. He never had messages where he talked about the evils of the Roman government and how they're overstepping their bounds. That wasn't his goal. In fact, when asked by the Jews whether it was right to pay taxes to a pagan government, Jesus said, show me a coin. And when they gave him the coin, he said, whose picture is on the coin? Whose image is on the coin? And they said, Caesar. And he said, so give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. In other words, go ahead and give the money to Caesar, pay the taxes, but give yourself because you're created the image of God to God. When people started wondering, questioning, thinking what, that Jesus might be the long-awaited Messiah, the religious and political leaders knew they had to do something. They had to put a stop to it. On the one hand, they were afraid if Jesus became this political leader that the Romans would come in with an army and destroy the Jews. On the other hand, they couldn't believe that the Messiah would come from a place like Nazareth, be the son of a carpenter. They firmly believed that the Messiah must come through their ranks, come from a town like Jerusalem. The leaders were saying whatever they could to keep from admitting that Jesus was sent by God and that He spoke with God's authority and He performed divine miracles through the power of God. And when they saw the miraculous powers, Jesus cast out a demon out of the mute man, the man began to speak. And people were amazed at what they've just seen and The religious and political leaders thought we've got to do something. We've got to nip this now. It's getting out of hand. So they they said the worst possible thing they could say. They said, he doesn't cast out demons by the power of God. He does it by the power of Satan. In other words, Jesus is nothing but a tool of Satan. Well, Jesus would show them the hypocrisy of their claim and the foolishness of their claim. And he would turn the attention on those who were demanding more signs. And he called them this wicked generation. This evil group of people that are looking for something and they're ignoring all the signs they've already been given. They're ignoring all the teaching that they've already heard and they're looking for something else that will satisfy their curiosity or their craving for entertainment. And then he spoke of the fact that God had had blessed Gentiles, that Gentiles had listened to the message of God without any confirming miracles. They repented. And he said those generations will stand up in the judgment and condemn the current generation of Jews. Surely the Jews who have the law 
and the prophets should believe what Jesus had been teaching them. If they didn't believe the words, they should at least believe the signs. This becomes the turning point in the ministry of Jesus. That day, when the religious and political leaders accused Jesus of being empowered by Satan, it's a turning point. It is the, the apex of the rejection of Christ. And all this happens before lunch. That's just the morning. And that brings us to our text in Luke chapter 11. Starting in verse 37, there's an invitation from a Pharisee, an unnamed Pharisee, for Jesus to have lunch at his house. Verse 37, and when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. So this is a it's not it's more than just Jesus. We know there are others there at this luncheon, but he invites Jesus. It's surprising, really, that the Pharisee would invite Jesus to lunch, given the tone of the things that happened that morning, the things that have already been said. Perhaps he was give the Pharisee the benefit of the, of the doubt. Maybe he was just trying to be hospitable. It's a visiting rabbi. I, he, he's not from this town. I will I will invite him in and have lunch with him. That'll be the the right thing to do. It, society wise, it was the right thing to do. It was uh, hospitable, and that was expected of the Jews. Maybe he had an ulterior motive. Maybe he was planning on convincing Jesus, hoping to convince Jesus to join the Pharisee side. Well, he's smart. He knew some things. He could be a real asset to the Pharisees if he would come over and do things their way. Or perhaps it was even more sinister than that. Along the lines of keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. But the meal takes an unexpected turn before they even eat in the first course. Right away, the tone is set. It's clear the Pharisee doesn't want to have anything to do with being a disciple of Jesus. He has something else in mind. There are going to be two main courses at lunch. The first course will be roasted Pharisee. And the second course will be skewered lawyer. So, The Pharisee, the word Pharisee, means separated one. And it comes from the idea that they wanted to be separated, they wanted to separate themselves from any ritual uncleanness. Anything that was deemed unclean, they wanted to be removed from that, separated from that. They began around 100 BC, so about 100 years before cell phone, I mean before Christ. And they prided themselves on their ability to keep the law. Specifically, they focused on strict adherence to laws of purity. Laws of the Sabbath, laws of prayer, and laws of tithing. Those were their main focuses. Now, at that point in, in history, the, there were rabbis that would rank the laws in order of importance. So for the Pharisees, the laws in, a, in order of importance were laws of purity, Sabbath, prayer, and tithing. Those were the most prominent ones. Everything below that was kind of irrelevant to them to a certain extent. 
Josephus, a historian, first century historian, described the Pharisees as, quote, the most accurate exegetes of the law, end quote. So if anybody understood the law, Josephus said it would have been the Pharisees. They were, at one point in time, at least the most influential group in all of Israel. Even more influential than the priests, certainly more influential than the Sadducees. Matthew chapter 23, verse 2, Jesus said, The scribes and the Pharisees had seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Now, historically, Moses is the most influential man in the history of Israel. They held Moses up even higher than David, higher than Solomon. So Moses was the premier person, and by putting themselves in Moses' chair, Moses' seat, they were claiming, and Jesus was affirming, their influence over the nation of Israel. As Jesus enters the Pharisees' home, he bypasses a water pot, probably sitting right outside the front door, and he ignores the ritual washing of hands before a meal, and he goes right in and reclines at the table. Now, for the Pharisees and many of the Jews, washing your hands has nothing to do with hygiene. It was rather a ritualistic, purifying uh, activity. They would, before any meal, go to this pot filled with water for purification... And they would scoop out about a half a cup of water and it would, they would pour it over their hands and wipe their hands over this running water. It wasn't an extreme amount. They didn't have soap. They're just running it under the water. And that was a symbolic act of purification, but they began to think it as crucial. They assumed that, the Pharisees that is, assumed that ritual impurity was passed from person to person. So, for instance, a man gets up in the morning and he touches her, his wife, but she is ceremonially unclean as she is one week out of the month. And because he touches her, he is now unclean. And he goes to the marketplace and he buys some food, but when he pulls out his money, the money becomes unclean and he hands it to the person on the other side of the counter and they take the money. And then later they give that money as changed to somebody else. Now that person who takes the money is now unclean. And that person puts that money in their pocket and they see a friend in the marketplace and they greet him by putting, grabbing their shoulders and kissing him on the cheek and now that man is unclean. And that man then goes to the city well and he pulls up uh, the bucket to get some water and now the rope and the bucket is unclean. The Pharisee goes out later and fills up his purification water pot with the same well, but now he's unclean. So he washes his hands before the meal to think he's purifying himself from any uncleanness. But Jesus, this widely popular rabbi, goes right past the water pot and lays down at the table. Verse 38, when the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. The Pharisees shocked. 
How can he do this? He's clearly unclean. He's been among a group of people, hundreds of people all morning. He's even cast out a demon. Certainly, he's touched something that is unclean. He's, he, it's been transferred to him from some unsuspecting person. So to that Pharisee, everything Jesus touches from that moment on is unclean. Any cup that Jesus touches is unclean. If Jesus grabs the pitcher of, of wine and pours it in a cup, that pitcher is now unclean. If he grabs a fork and scoops something off of a plate onto his plate, sets that fork back down, the fork and the plate that it touches is now unclean. And all the food associated with it. So for that Pharisee, everything is unclean and he's amazed that Jesus wouldn't wash his hands. So for the Pharisee, if he touches anything Jesus touched, he himself will be unclean externally. And if he eats the food, he'll be unclean internally. So he's surprised. He's surprised Jesus doesn't know better. He's surprised Jesus is not like him. He's surprised that Jesus doesn't hold the traditions to the same extent that he himself does. He believed that the traditions that he held to were God's ultimate standard. So for the Pharisee, by not washing his hands, Jesus is violating God's standard. It sounds widely familiar right now. According to rabbinic, one rabbinic tradition, eating bread without washing your hands brings about the same type of uncleanness that being intimate with a prostitute would. This is an attitude that is very common today. Many modern day Pharisees And when a Christian doesn't hold the same convictions that they hold, they think they're violating, that person is violating God's standard. Because many Christians take the convictions that they hold and say, if I hold this conviction, that must be God's standard. And they ignore passages like Romans chapter 14 that says one man regards one day above another and one man regards every day the same. One man will eat meat and one man will only eat vegetables. And the one who eats meat thanks God for the meat. The one who eats the vegetables thanks God for the vegetables. And the one who regards one day as important thanks God for that day. And the one guy who doesn't think any days are special thanks God for that. And they are all right before God. And God says, how dare you judge the convictions of another But this is what the Pharisees doing. See, the washing of the hands wasn't law. The only ones that were required to wash their hands were the priests and only before they sacrificed. There was no law that said you had to wash your hands before eating. Unless you grew up in my house and then there was clearly a law. Over the years, the oral tradition of washing your hands, this taking what the purification of the priest before the sacrifice began to be applied to every person, every Jew at every meal. 
And it began, it was passed down orally, and by the time it gets to the time of Christ, their oral tradition is law. They have made it equal to law. Jesus is about to use this event to point out the foolishness of the Pharisees. The foolishness of the Pharisees. Look at verse 39. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. I imagine Jesus picked up a cup at that moment. And as soon as he grabbed it, I'm sure the Pharisee went... And Jesus says, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup. But inside you're full of robbery and wickedness. It's a serious problem if you only clean the outside of the cup and pay no attention to the inside of it. I would hope none of you will ever go into an infectious disease laboratory, find a beaker with some unknown liquid in it, pour it out, Take an alcohol wipe and wipe the outside of the beaker, then fill it up with water and drink out of it. That would be, starts with an S, ends with tupid. (laughs) Jesus is saying that the Pharisees are like cups, clean on the outside but full of poison on the inside. If you could see them the way Jesus saw them, You would see on the outside like a nice shiny pot. And you pull the lid off and it's full of rancid meat. They're nice and pretty on the outside. Maggot infested on the inside. When I was a youth pastor, one of the games, one of the activities we would have when we had a uh, game night was a lot of relays. You'd break them up into teams of four, and, or, or four teams rather, and, and then they relay. And sometimes we would do it with, uh, you know, balls or uh, where you have to shoot it into a basketball or something like that into a hoop. And sometimes it was with food, and that was a lot of fun where they'd run up and they'd have a, you know, stack of crackers and they had to eat the crackers as fast as they can. The first person to eat them and then whistle got the points and things like that. And one of them that we did was a caramel apple race. So you'd run up and you'd grab a nice caramel apple and you had to eat that as fast as you could, which is a little difficult to do. But on one occasion, it was rather fun. When they ran up there and they grabbed the caramel apples and they took a bite, they found out that one of them was not actually an apple, but an onion. (laughs) A caramel onion. Just because something is covered in caramel doesn't make it good. These Pharisees looked great on the outside, but they were full of wickedness on the inside. In verse 40, Jesus says, You foolish ones, did not He who made the outside make the inside also? They lived their life as if God could only see what they showed Him. God could only see people the way we see people. And we can only see the exterior. We can only see what our senses can pick up. I know a lot of people who think they can see the inside. 
But the reality is we only see what we can see. We can only see what we can experience and what we hear. God sees the heart. God sees your heart. God sees your mind. God knows your motives. In fact, He knows them better than you do. Because your heart is deceitfully wicked. And it deceives you. These foolish Pharisees think God only knows what I tell God. Other than that, He can't know anything. It's foolish to think you can fool God the way we fool men. What God sees in us is far more important than what any human being sees in us. To put it another way, the condition of your heart is much more important than the condition of your hair. Yet how many people spend more time with their hair than they do with their heart? I know, I just saw it. All of you looked at the people with no hair. All right, let's change the illustration. Some of you are more concerned with the hair you used to have than with the heart you should have. We so often give an inordinate amount of time to fix up the outward appearance and spend so little time on the interior. Yet that's what's more important. And if you take care of the interior and get that right, the exterior stuff takes care of itself. Verse 41. Here's the remedy. Jesus says, But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. In other words, give your heart that's full of robbery and wickedness. Instead, give that to to doing the things that God wants you to do. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus is speaking about this love of money and He says you can't serve God and money. And the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were scoffing at Jesus for saying this. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees now that you need to have the inside characterized by charity, about caring, about giving, about being generous. sign that God is working in them. At the judgment of the sheep and the goats, when God separates the sheep from the goats and puts the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left, He will say to the sheep, enter into the joy of the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. And on and on and on. And they'll say, when did we do that? And He said, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he turns to the wicked and says, Depart from me into everlasting punishment because when I was hungry, you didn't give me anything to eat. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. And on and on and on. And they'll say, When did we see you in these conditions and not help you? And he said, When you did not do it to the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it to me. When your heart doesn't show concern for other people, it proves that your heart is not right with God. God. 
When you're more concerned in your heart about your own life and the way you're living and what you get and what you want than you are about anybody else, then you're proving that your heart doesn't belong to Christ. So Jesus says, if you want to get it right, Pharisees, work on the inside first. Get the heart right. Then Jesus pronounces three woes on the Pharisees. A woe is a, is a curse that unless one repents, they'll reap the curse. Like when Jonah preached to the Ninevites. He said, repent, because in three days this place is going to be destroyed. It was a woe. Woe to you, Ninevites. Because if you don't repent, you're going to die. And they did repent and God relented. So the first woe of the Pharisees in verse 42, it's woeful disregard. Woeful disregard, verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees. For you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. And yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. They tithed off their herbs, but they disregarded justice and love. The Pharisees were focused on minor details and ignored major relational issues. I mean, imagine the dedication to go to your garden and count the number of leaves on a, on a, uh, herb bush and take tenth of them off so you can tithe off those. Or take all the seeds that grow off a particular plant that you can use again and you count out a tenth of those. That's what the Pharisees were doing. This is how righteous I am. I tithe off of everything. So not just 10% of my money, but 10%, and that's what tithe means, by the way, is tenth. So 10% of my money, but 10% of everything I grow in my garden. If I grow 20 bananas, God gets two. If I grow 40 apples, God gets 10% of that. Four. They fail to remember this, that the entire law is summarized by this state, these two statements. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Counting herbs, even very tiny ones, is much easier than loving people. Yet that's what they should have been doing. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is what God expects of His followers. To love Him and to love other people. To love mercy and grace and justice for one another. Loving others. Showing mercy and grace and justice is not limited to 10% of the people you know. 
And it's not limited to 10% of your heart. It requires all of it. And Jesus is upset with the Pharisees because they are the religious movers and shakers of their day. And they are teaching people error by the way that they live every single day. We must be careful that we don't become modern day Pharisees doing what is easy and disregarding what is required. We are required to love people. We're required to love one another. We're required to forgive. We're required to show grace and mercy, particularly with those people who don't see things the way we see things. From woeful disregard, he moves on to woeful pride. Because this is where woeful disregard started. Verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Oh, they love to be exalted. The synagogue was to be a place of prayer and they made it a place of their own prominence. They would go into the synagogues and they want the seats that were above everybody else. They loved it when people would greet them and recognize them and say all kinds of wonderful things about them. They were to be there to show their devotion to God. They were to be giving attention to God's Word, yet they were drawing the attention for themselves. They wanted to be exalted. They wanted to be admired. When they would walk into the marketplace, they would want people to look at them and go, Ooh, look at that. I wish I could be one of those men. And they did recognize them by the way that they dressed and more prominently by the phylacteries, the leather pouches on their forehead were larger than anybody else's. And these phylacteries, these leather pouches, either on their forehead or on their arm, on their upper arm, held passages of Scripture, Old Testament Scripture. So by enlarging theirs, they were showing, I have more Scripture in mind than you do. It would be like walking into church next Sunday with a 30-pound Bible under your arm and a t-shirt that lists all the scriptures that you've memorized. You know, for a long time, and maybe it still happens, the Southern Baptist churches gave away pins for perfect Sunday school attendance for the year. And people began to wear them as badges of honor and, and you'd have the year one pin and then the year two connected to it and then down the long, and the longer the strain of, the string of pins you had, well, clearly the more spiritual you are. God opposes the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud because pride exalts yourself over God. And God honors humility. James 4.10 Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. Don't be a modern day Pharisee. Give yourself to honor God. 
From woeful disregard, woeful pride, we move on to woeful impact. And here's the crux of it, verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. They're not what they seemed. They're frauds. Touching a dead body would make one unclean for a period of seven days, according to Numbers 19. By calling the Pharisees concealed tombs, he's saying that when people come in contact with you, they don't even realize they're coming in contact with the dead. That contact with you Pharisees is actually defiling people. They have wickedness interned within themselves. It's like going to a medical doctor who has a contagious disease and infects every patient who comes to visit him. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were infecting everybody they had influence over with their hypocrisy, their foolishness. Be careful you don't become a modern-day Pharisee. One is more concerned with the external than with the internal. Well, there's another group at the lunch. They're lawyers or scribes. Their words are used interchangeably, titles. And they're concerned. So he's... Jesus is going to pronounce three woes against them. Verse 45, one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Notice Jesus didn't say, Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, didn't, certainly didn't mean to insult you lawyers. Rather, he says, in essence, you don't need to feel insulted by what I said to the Pharisees. I got three for you. So the first is woeful requirements. Verse 46, woe to you lawyers as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You are sorry ambassadors that claim to speak for God, but you don't. They claim to know and to proclaim the mind of God, but all they do is put words in God's mouth. Prior to the Babylonian captivity, the scribes were nothing more than literate men. They could read and they could write. So their job as scribes was to copy the Scripture, the Old Testament Scripture. Copy the law, copy the prophets, copy the Psalms. That's what they did. Because they could read and write, that was their job. During the exile... During the Babylonian captivity, as the generation, that first generation went into captivity, would die out, and the, the next generation grew up in a foreign country speaking a foreign language, they lost their Hebrew. I can relate. I don't remember any of mine either. They couldn't read and write Hebrew anymore, so they couldn't read the Old Testament law and understand it. So they began to rely on the scribes to interpret, or translate rather, the Old Testament into the Persian language or whatever 
Babylonian language they were speaking. In order to translate something from one language to another, you have to interpret what's being said. So the scribes became interpreters of the law, became this scholarly group. So by the time we get to Christ, they are the experts in the law. They are the ones who not only record it, but they translate it They or they interpret it for people. What does this law mean? And they tell folks what it means, like our Supreme Court. And interestingly, the Jewish Supreme Court is made up of 71 people. It's called the Sanhedrin. And the majority of them were scribes or lawyers because they interpret the law. They acted as if they were the not only the interpreters of the law, but the protectors of the law. They would serve as official members in society and towns and villages and in the synagogues throughout Galilee and Judea. But over time, they began to take oral tradition and marry it to the written law. They didn't add it in. They didn't write it in like Moses said these things, but they translated it as such. They interpreted it as such. So they were adding strict requirements to the law and adding things that they themselves didn't do. Kind of a do as I say, not as I do type of thing. It's sort of like, let's say Congress passes a law, a tax law, but they exempt themselves from it. I know something like that would probably never happen. But it would be that kind of a thing. They would say, here's the law, but we don't have to follow it. They were adding burdens to people that were too heavy to bear and forging God's name. Adding these supposed safeguards, but making them equal with the law. It's like choosing to drive 25 miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone. And you choose to drive 25 miles an hour because you, if you drive 25 miles an hour, you won't accidentally exceed the 35 mile an hour speed limit. But because you have chosen to do that, you then criticize and condemn the person who drives 33 miles an hour. How dare you not drive 25 in a 35? That's what the lawyers were doing. They were creating issues with their interpretation of the law that were so difficult no one could stand up to them. From woeful requirements, we got to hurry, woeful charges. Verse 47, Woe to you, for you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your father because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. By building the tombs of these murdered prophets, not necessarily their their fathers of that gave them life, but their ancestors... By saying, by building the tombs, they are in essence saying, if we had been alive during the time of the prophets, we would not have killed them. We would have honored and listened to them. And Jesus knows the hypocrisy in their heart because they want to kill him. 
And he's a much greater prophet than anyone that lived before him. But they won't actually listen to him. And then verse 49, For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute. Notice this is the wisdom of God to do this. God said, I'm going to do this. This is part of my plan. They're going to kill and abuse prophets. Jesus will talk about that in the parable of the wicked tenants who who when the landlord sent the sent servants to to get the rent, the tenants beat some of them and killed some of them, including this the ten, the landowner's son. And then verse 50, 51, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel, that's the first righteous man in the Bible murdered, to the blood of Zechariah, who in Second uh, Chronicles 24 is murdered. He's the last one in the timeline of the Old Testament. From Abel to Zechariah, the first and the last righteous person in the Bible killed. It works perfectly in English. It's A to Z. Killed. He says it's going to be charged to this generation. It's going to culminate in the murder of Jesus Christ. Then the the final woe is verse 52, woeful barricades. Woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves do not enter, and you hinder those who are entering. Because they interpreted the law, they held the key to proper interpretation, to proper explanation of the Bible so that people would know the truth. But they ignored it, they complicated it, They made it man-centered. And they concealed the truth. They hid behind their man-made traditions. They obscured it, made it impossible to find. Like a blackberry vine bush that grows over your fence and covers your gate. You can't even find the gate anymore to get into the yard or leave the yard. Their interpretations of the law became detours and sent people in the wrong direction. There's a high price to pay for keeping people from God's Word. There's a high price to pay for making things harder than they should be. There's a high price to pay for putting words in God's mouth. For adding requirements to becoming a Christian that God never did. Like, what version of the Bible do you use? How you dress? What political opinions you have? What convictions you hold? When lunch was over, the plotting began, verse 53. When he had left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say they are proving everything Jesus had just said about them to be absolutely true. Their actions would confirm his condemnation. There are many modern-day Pharisees who reinterpret God's Word and try to add requirements to God's Word that God doesn't do, that God doesn't have. And we need to be careful that we're not so focused on the external that we miss the internal, which is to love God and love people. It's fine to have convictions. It's good. 
in fact, to have convictions. It's dangerous to apply those convictions to everybody else. It's okay to have strong feelings about the way things should be. It's wrong to impose those feelings on everybody else. That's what the Pharisees and the lawyers did. And Jesus condemned them for it. Don't be a Pharisee. I'd say don't be a lawyer, but... Don't be one of those guys. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your love and your grace and your mercy. So thankful, Father, that you love us. And you made it possible for us to be saved. You made it possible for us to be forgiven. You made it possible for us to have a life in Christ. And Lord, it doesn't require us to jump through hoops. It requires confession and repentance. And Father, may we be people of grace, mercy, Father, may we recognize that not everybody holds what we hold. Lord, it's not that what we believe is unimportant. Your word is what is important. And what we believe outside of your word is merely a conviction or a desire. Father, let us put things in the proper perspective. Let's love you. Help us. Help us to love you. Help us to love one another. Let us not neglect the things that we're doing that are good, but let us make sure that we're doing what we should. Help us to make sure our priority is right. That, Father, you might be glorified. Father, make us the people you want us to be. Use the events in our world to purify our hearts to purify our minds, to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And Father, let us not put words in your mouth. But Father, stick to the words that you said that you might get the glory and we might honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.